Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Tiny Witch at No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Creepy Goblin at No Film School. It's October 27th, 2016, and in case you couldn't tell, this is our Halloween show. You'll hear about our favorite horror flicks, how Netflix is taking over Hollywood, and a director dilemma that's scary enough for the season, how to ask your actors to get naked. As always, we'll bring you more news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As usual, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. I am known around here as the Halloween Grinch a little bit. Emily and John are big fans, um, but in the spirit of the season... You guys, I came up with a joke. Yeah, I, I see that on the outline now, and I'm I'm very scared of that. This says this is truly a horrifying episode. It's but let's, supposed to be scary. Let's hear it. Okay, ask me what I'm doing for Halloween. Hey, what are you doing for Halloween? Going to a party with my boo. Can I tell you guys? Okay, so yesterday when I was on a bus, I realized that if you need a lo-fi um, horror sound effect for your indie horror film, you all you have to do is basically take a recorder onto the bus and wait for them to announce a stop, because it literally sounds like a ghoul from the depths of hell <laughs> talking. It's like... <laughs> 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 That's great filmmaking advice, Emily. That's why and you come here every week. An okay joke, Liz. <laughs> Decent. Mm, I'll keep working. Anyway, since John is our in-house horror aficionado, I'm going to pass the mic to him to kick off the horror talk. Okay. I am sort of recently a horror aficionado. Aficionado. Um, I used to be scared of them when I was a kid, so I never really watched them, which just means I get to discover them now, which is like part of the reason why I'm attracted to them. Um, but another reason why I'm attracted to them is they just really make me have an illicit response to them, like a physical or emotional response that a lot of other genres just don't really do for me anymore. So that being said, I thought it would be cool for at least me and Emily to mention some of our favorite horror movies because Liz is scared of them, right, Liz? Super scared. But, you know, we'll try and maybe convince her that she should watch a few of these, too, in the process. So I asked uh, Emily and myself <laughs> to name a recent horror movie and a classic horror movie to share with you guys. So actually, I'll ask Emily <laughs> to go first. Emily, you want to start with uh, your recent pick? Yeah, well, I have to say I love horror films, and one of the reasons I love them is because I think my subconscious is basically one <laughs> entire horror film because every t I have nightmares all the time of like very, very real, vivid horror film-type scenes, and I've had them since I was a kid. So it's probably because I read too much Stephen King as a kid. But they that just kind of brings me back into that like primal state of fear as a kid, and nothing else really does that, like yeah, you were saying before. Totally, I agree. But that's the place you want to go. That's what yeah. I don't understand. Like, why do you want to go to your adrenaline. primal place of fear? It's like mm. it's like bungee jumping or any of those things. Like some people 
are are energized by that kind of fear and some people aren't personally i'm scared of bungee jumping (laughs) and it it sticks with me i don't know it's I personally enjoy movies that I have to think about after I leave them. And so horror films automatically get the advantage there if they're scary because I won't stop thinking about them because I'm pretty spooked. Also, just the world is a scary place and it's evidenced by like horror mythology that's gone back to like the dawn of humanity, you know? So I think there's something about horror that really captivates the human spirit. My recent pick definitely uh, will illustrate that. Well, I guess I could do mine first if you want then. Oh, well, by any chance is yours the witch? No. Okay. Is yours the tiny witch? Mine's not the tiny witch, but it is the witch, so you go first. Okay. Well, no, but you just said, yeah, you just gave yours away. You got to go. You go first. Okay. Um, I think the witch is the best horror film that's come out in the past couple years um, because it does tap into that primal fear. Um, It's, if any of you haven't heard of it, it's, a big Sundance sensation from 2015 about a, a pilgrim family who isolates themselves in um, the woods of, I believe, New Hampshire, and um, they start to see signs of the devil. And um, there's just something about the the way the atmosphere is crafted in that film. First of all, the characters are absolutely incredible. Um, the acting's really, really good, very nuanced and very unsettling. And the atmosphere just gives you this this like 24-7 unnerving sense of you know anything could possibly happen and you know that it's not going to be good yeah totally and we actually have a few articles that go into depth about why the witch is so scary So my recent movie, sort of in the same vein of this primal fear or how horror can really translate into everyday life situations or how the world itself is so scary right now is um, a movie that premiered at Sundance this year called Under the Shadow. It's directed by Babak Anvari. I saw it back in March and people were calling it the Iranian Babadook, but I think it's actually a much better film and much more frightening because although it does have sort of the fantastical elements of a horror film, it's really also a really interesting historical drama. And I learned a lot about um, the Iraq-Iranian war. Yeah, the the monster in that movie is violence of war. Right, so I'll just say the uh, synopsis really quick. After Shida's building is hit by a missile during the Iran-Iraq war, a superstitious neighbor suggests that the missile was cursed and might be carrying malevolent Middle Eastern spirits, or jinn. She becomes convinced a supernatural force within the building is attempting to possess her daughter, Dorsa, and she has no choice but to confront these forces if she is to save her daughter and herself. You said what? That the warfare is sort of the fear of the movie? It's the monster. Yeah, yeah. it's the monster. So really, I mean, there, while there is a an actual spiritual presence, it's impossible to distinguish um, whether that presence is indeed a jinn or if it's just the paranoia or fear that this woman has to live through every day of getting bombed into oblivion. I um, think people were comparing it to the Babadook also because that that monster in that movie was metaphorical too. It was grief. So um, in, in a similar way, it was like a, a very human experience became sort of the well, flesh-eating monster. What's your favorite classic horror movie? 
Well, okay, so I'm not counting The Shining because it's yeah. my favorite movie That's of all given. time. That is yeah. a given. So there's I'm no. I'm gonna see it, you guys. I swear I'm gonna see it. Yeah, Liz oh. has never seen The Shining. Crimes so Against Cinema. It's a uh, it's the perfect movie, and we don't have to talk about that. But Liz, you have to see it. So instead, I chose the movie Evil Dead Two because it's match. <laughs> if any movie matched up with my personal tastes in films, this would be it. It's just trippy, scary, completely unique, funny as hell. Um, And I just really respect what Sam Raimi did with it. The entire trilogy is great, but I'm not really going to get into what happens in the trilogy because I don't want to spoil anything. And it's just so mind bending and you like won't see what's coming at all if you just watch it blind going into it but the course of the narrative is just so weird and great and nothing like it has been done ever ever since so what sam Raimi did with it was after he made um the evil dead which was the first film which is just a, another really great testament to independent filmmaking um he had like really small budget for that film um and he had a lot of producers sort of getting in the way of what his vision was and he was able to do a fantastic job regardless of the fact i mean there's some incredibly innovative stuff in that movie um but evil dead 2 is just one he like lets loose he basically just makes a remake of the first evil dead movie with slightly different plot line and four different characters but it's the exact same problem and it's sort they even go through the exact same sort of um hauntings or steps uh he just wanted to do it in a better way so he essentially remade his own movie six years later with a budget it's one of the original cabin in the woods movies i won't say anything more uh it slips into all sorts of different genres and this one is definitely a good one for you liz because Remy actually wanted it to be more of a comedy than a horror. Mm. So it's just sort of like unapologetically grotesque and campy to the point where the gore is hilarious. And the tactics he uses to scare you are so well employed and so unique and revolutionary. And I think that everyone should see it regardless if they're scared of blood or anything, because it's just such a good demonstration of a filmmaker using every single tool. I have to say that my classic horror favorite is probably on the opposite side of the spectrum as yours. It's not jam-packed with jump scares or like really haunting images um, or anything. Those movies, I think, are scary in the short term. Like I'll think about them for a couple days afterwards. But I think the most effective horror films actually use atmosphere, psychology, and realism to and bring those elements together to create a nightmare that you feel like could happen to you. And you are totally able to empathize with the plight of the protagonists and you feel their pain quite literally so needless to say my favorite is michael hanukkah's funny games oh yeah Um, emily this is the halloween show not the hanukkah show (laughs) (laughs) sorry go on okay um there are two versions of this movie as we know the german version which hanukkah made and the remake which he actually remade um in english with naomi watts and michael pitt in a famously scary role. So I guess we're unintentionally focusing on self-made remakes. Yeah. <laughs> That's our theme of well, the Well, which show. one? You, you, but you chose the original, right? I right? chose the original, yes. But both are, they're very similar. I mean, pretty much word for word. Um, so the plot of this movie is two teenage boys knock on the door of their neighbor's summer house. It's a family with a mother, a father, and a young son. 
and they seem pretty innocuous at first. They're just asking to borrow an egg. And then they leave and they come back and the hair on the back of your neck starts pricking up for some reason. You don't know why these people are really scary because they're not doing anything overtly menacing, but there's something about them that's very unsettling. And then slowly they get invited into the house. And over the course of a day and a half, these two boys turn out to be psychopaths and start torturing and murdering the family um, in their house. And what's scary about it is that the evil that the that they inflict is random and it sort of touches upon the banality of evil. Like you don't know why, when, or how the torture is going to come, but you know it's going to come and you know that you're going to have to watch your loved ones face it. This unpredictability is really, really scary because like in life, humans and animals go insane when they can't predict negative outcomes and negative events. And this is entirely chaotic and random. It's very scary and it's not for the faint of heart. Cool. I like how ours sort of juxtaposed there unintentionally. That was cool. Yeah, me too. I got to say, you guys are kind of bringing me around. Those all sound really, really interesting. (laughs) Um, You know, I do hate scary movies, but I just want to point out that movies don't have to be scary to be Halloween-y. I mean, it's The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and Beetlejuice are classics. Again, not really a horror person, but I do love fantasy and sci-fi and superhero films, all of which, we got to admit, lend themselves to great costumes. I mean... A lot of them are featuring caped crusaders, right? I think my favorite superhero franchise altogether is X-Men, but my favorite recent superhero movie is the first Avengers because it was really well-crafted but didn't take itself too seriously. It was like full of jokes and Easter eggs for comic fans. Plus, it has an indie tie because director Joss Whedon immediately followed it up with an arty black-and-white adaptation of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing shot in his own house. I think I can forgive you for choosing The Avengers as your favorite modern horror film. (laughs) (laughs) You can? I think I can. I'm coming to to terms with it very slowly, but, you know. Gotcha. (laughs) It's a stretch. (laughs) We'll say that. I'm saying it's not a horror film, but it's a genre film with costumes. It's Halloween-y. Anyway, if y'all are interested in digging deep into the horror genre, also when I was looking into this story... I discovered Shudder.com, which has been around for a while, I guess, but I didn't know about it being a horror wimp. Now I feel a little encouraged. Um, And this is a great resource for for all of us. It's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. They have um, about 500 titles in the horror and thriller um, world and a bunch of really kind of cool subgenre collections like Flesh Eating Frenzy and Psychos and Mad Men. So, good place to get your feet wet. I'll do it if you'll do it. Blood. (laughs) Don't scare Liz. (laughs) (laughs) While we're on the topic of genre films and streaming services, a little news item that gave me the shivers this week was the announcement that every single episode of the second season of Netflix's Jessica Jones will be directed by a woman. It's a comic book series about a deeply troubled but ass-kicking superhero named Jessica Jones, who's played by Kristen Ritter of Breaking Bad fame. She was Jesse's junky girlfriend, it makes sense that women would helm the direction. And it's especially exciting because um, a Directors Guild of America report recently revealed that women only directed 17% of all TV episodes last year. So it's about damn time for shows to step up. That is a big increase from the, I think it's 6% of uh, feature films. 
Yeah. I, I don't know. It, Fact check me on that. <laughs> well, series are doing better in that department than films are, but still, you know, there's such a long way to go. Um, but now, we don't know yet who the directors will be uh, who are helming the series, but we hope that they'll follow in the footsteps of Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar and some of the other streaming shows in pulling heavily from the indie world. And speaking of Netflix and their content... It's a Netflix show. Um, we've been hearing more and more about their meteoric rise in, orig- in the original content production space. Um, of course, Hollywood and the major networks find this threatening on a lot of levels. For one thing, as a subscription model, Netflix isn't beholden to advertisers in the same way that networks are. So they have a lot more leeway in what can be produced. And I think that's why they're willing to take perceived risks on things like female directors. The Financial Post produced a story earlier this week that went as far as to say that Netflix is taking over Hollywood. They cited examples of Netflix poaching up-and-coming development stars from other networks to the point where 21st Century Fox is suing Netflix for allegedly encouraging some of Fox's employees to break their contracts and go work for Netflix. The company almost doubled their number of employees last year, and they've also leased a massive office and production studio right in the heart of Hollywood. It's like over 300,000 square feet. Sounds fair to me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like Netflix is sort of also really, really good to their employees and they seem like a great company to work for. And so some of these studios are just going to have to adapt to that. Netflix is actually raising $1 billion in debt to produce original content, which is quite a lot of money given the fact that their long-term goal is for 50% of TV shows and movies on the streaming platform to be original productions. This year, Netflix produced House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Marvel's Daredevil, and many, many more. Next year, in 2017, we can look forward to season two of Stranger Things, Marvel's Iron Fist, the third and final season of Bloodline, and a talk show from Bill Nye, the science guy. (laughs) Oh, cool. So it's obviously not news that many of the most prominent directors working today have turned to original series. We've got Woody Allen's New Kid on the Block, Crisis in Six Scenes, Guillermo del Toro's The Strain, Steven Soderbergh's The Nick, Martin Scorsese's Boardwalk Empire, Carrie Fukunaga's True Detective, David Fincher's House of Cards, plus his new Netflix series Mindhunter, and Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, not to mention Michael Mann's HBO series Luck. So that's just a handful, and it goes to show that that's, you know, the new place for rising auteurs. I mean, yeah, right now this news is really good for indie filmmakers. Everyone um, we've heard from at No No Film School who's worked with Netflix has found it to be a positive experience. Like even your podcast last week, John, with the Black Mirror guys said they, they loved working with Netflix. Ava DuVernay's film 13th just came out on Netflix, and they actually approached her to make the film, and she loved the experience. So, you know, any outlet that's providing more money for creating new work is potentially beneficial to us. However, I think it, you know, it could become a cautionary tale. Like if their investments don't pay off and they've gone into all this debt, in the meanwhile, bringing other media companies down, this could hurt the entire industry in the long run. So, you know, we'll keep a close eye on things right now. It does feel very positive. Moving on to gear news, we brought in our tech writer, Charles Hain, to let you know what's going on this week. Thanks, Liz. So, got a couple fun tech stories this week. Uh, the first is that, so about a month ago, Sigma announced their new CineLens series, a couple of Zooms and a bunch of Primes, which are going to roll out this fall and in the spring. And the first two Zooms, they finally announced pricing at $39.99 each. 
Uh, this is a really incredible price for a cinema zoom, considering that both the lenses open up all the way to a T2 and will eventually be in PL mount. I was able to spend some t- hands-on time with the lenses over the weekend at Photo Plus. The build quality feels excellent with a really pleasant drag feeling to the rings and very well thought out engineering and labeling. We're hoping to do a full day with the lenses closer to their release and we'll have a review and some tests then. But as far as I could tell, the aberration looked really minimal and I was really impressed with what I saw. Um, E and EF mount are going to be available in December. The PL mount will follow, and it'll be interchangeable, but not in the field. You'll have to take it back to a service center. Also in tech news, we talked about why this weird Meridian short film was on Netflix. It's a short film noir from the 40s that doesn't make any sense. Although, if you just finished a massive Veep binge and you need more Reed Scott in your life, it does star Reed Scott. Uh... The interesting thing about it isn't its narrative content. It's a test film from Netflix that explores new encoding technology to help the platform see how the film survives being streamed to an audience. And it's really designed to help Netflix handle the future of video. Whether we like it or not, we're moving towards higher and higher resolutions, 4K, 8K, and we're seeing higher and higher frame rates with projects like the new Ang Lee film, uh, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, shooting at 4K, 120 frames per second. We are going to see content on Netflix that's going to require a lot of bandwidth. And it makes sense that Netflix is trying to test to make sure that their workflows are in place so that that bandwidth survives as well as possible. And Meridian sort of pushes all of that to the limits. And in a very cool move, Netflix has opened up the project. It's open source. You can go ahead and download it. And uh, I wonder if Reed Scott got the part because the CEO of Netflix is also named Reed. And the final bit of gear news this week was uh, Digital Anarchy, most famous for the Beauty Box set of tools, came out with a new sharpening tool called Samurai Sharpen. I'm really excited when I see competition in this space, especially when things like sharpening and color tools that you traditionally think of as finishing tools move to the NLE. I've worked on a bunch of productions where there was like a need for something like sharpening, either because you needed to match cameras or there was a focus problem. And what happens a lot is you're like shuffling it over to resolve and the finishing people and then bringing it back to the edit and back and forth. And it's a huge waste of time, but you sometimes need to process this footage to see if you should even use it. And it's really nice to see more sophisticated sharpening tools. This is designed specifically for Premiere and Final Cut X, uh, where you can use it right in the edit suite from the beginning. You don't have to shuffle it around to other projects. And you can start to see, like, is that soft shot going to be usable? Or do we really have to go for another take? And uh, Digital Anarchy builds a lot of great stuff. And I think it's a pretty sophisticated sharpening tool that will have a lot of applications. And our scariest section of the show, Grand Deadlines. Why is this our scariest <laughs> section of the show? Because no they're reason. looming. No reason. <laughs> Around your shoulder. Because they're in beautiful California. Yes. John, what are you talking about? I'm talking about California Documentary Project's two grants that you can apply for by November 1st. The first is their Research and Development Grant. California Humanities is offering grants from the California Documentary Project that are intended for films that have some kind of connection to California and strengthen the understanding of the humanities for the state. These research and development grants range up to $10,000 and are intended for documentary media productions in their earliest stages. 
The second grant that they're putting out is the production grant, which also has a deadline of November 1st. If you have a work in progress for a film that features humanities in the state of California, then the production grant can range up to $50,000, which is more than $10,000. I'd say five times more. I'd agree with you. And here are your festival deadlines for the week. The Lower East Side Festival has a deadline on November 1st. This is the early deadline. It's a cool festival that takes place in New York City's Lower East Side, or as we hip New Yorkers like to call it, L-E-S. The L-E-S. And that goes on from June 8th to 15th next year in 2017. It features great programming and events every year. For example, last June, I went to a panel on horror and thriller. Ah! Okay, that was good. Screenwriting featuring Ted Talley and Jeremy Saulnier. Screenwriting! (laughs) (laughs) Screenwriting. Oh, I love this show. The Lower East Side Film Festival has awards for multiple categories, including feature, live action, animated, documentary, web series, and music video. The Vancouver Web Fest has a deadline of October 31st, otherwise known as Halloween. (laughs) Very spooky. It takes place in Vancouver, Canada, March 17th to 19th, 2017. And this festival claims to be the first digital web fest of its kind in Canada and the fifth in the world. The three-day festival will host workshops, keynote speakers, launch parties, fun, screenings, pitch sessions, and panels featuring industry experts and networking opportunities. There are 28 award categories, and all winners receive a custom-engraved lead crystal trophy. So since this is a spooky episode, we thought we'd just list a few more scary good opportunities. Scary good. (laughs) For anyone with a horror project, the Independent Horror Film Festival has their final deadline on October 31st, Halloween. Motor City Nightmares International Film Festival has an early deadline on October 31st, it's Halloween. The Magic of Horror Screenwriting Competition has a deadline on October 31st, Halloween. So if you want any more details about these opportunities, you can find the information in the post associated with this podcast. This week's episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo, the world's best filmmakers called Vimeo Home. We all know about Vimeo, but do you know about Vimeo Pro? When you join Vimeo Pro, you can upload up to 20 gigabytes of video each week and showcase your video in the highest quality possible with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Vimeo can provide you with a platform to really jumpstart your career as a filmmaker. And if you have a Vimeo Pro account, all those prospective clients are going to look at it and they're going to be like, this filmmaker is a real pro. Even better than that, you'll join a supportive community of passionate filmmakers and video professionals that you can only find on Vimeo. Or no film school, of course. Not to mention, that support network can give you feedback on your latest project, provide you with an easy way to send off work to collaborators, and act as a resume to show off all the work you've previously done. So if you're ready to stop playing around with the YouTubes and get serious, you can give Vimeo Pro a try and save 15% when you go to vimeo.com slash professionals. Get pro and enter the code NFS at checkout. Limit one discount per person, offer valid for first year of membership, renews at regular price. Vimeo Pro, powerful tools for professional filmmakers. For this week's Ask No Film School question, 
we uh, have a query about one of the spookiest aspects of filmmaking a producer or director could possibly encounter, and that is the difficult task of asking your actors to get nude for your production. Boobs. (laughs) (laughs) One of our community members, Thomas Bunink, asks... I'm the casting director on a new project. In the project, we have the male lead, a pantomime player, and a waitress. They fall in love and have a very sensual scene in the shower. He says, we won't go full on sex position here like in Game of Thrones, but for the sake of authenticity, the director wants actors to be actually naked on set. So he wants to know how can he ask the auditioning actors if they'd be up for nudity without sounding as though he's about to record a creepy casting couch video. So... While a few people on the filmmaking side responded to his questions on the board, I thought it would be apropos to ask a few of my female actor friends how they'd best like the situation handled themselves. And I got a really great response thanks to everyone who, all my friends, all my great, great friends who responded to the question. I gathered some of the more important notes. And the first part of the question that really needs to be addressed is while you're, you may be going for authenticity, you need to figure out what exactly you mean by that because that's sort of just a blanket term that means nothing at all. Um, many of the actors I asked stated that while authenticity is important, what's more important is that it is actually necessary for the story or plot or is integral to that er- actor's character that they get naked. In other words, you're going to gain something from seeing this nudity right. so, in the story. So since you went with a Game of Thrones analogy, I'm going to share another Game of Thrones analogy that my friend Sophie Boss used. And speaking of just what I was saying, she said, like when Daenerys comes out of the fire. Obviously, her clothes burnt off and she was unscathed. That makes sense. But when I see sides where it's like pans up her legs and bottom are bare, slow motion, water dripping down her thin body, I'm like, no, make sure it's justified before you ask. Another actor I asked, Bethany Kay, who had experience doing nude scenes for HBO's Boardwalk Empire, said a similar thing. She said that the nudity should always be character-specific and necessary, or it's just exploitation. There are too many scripts that ask for a naked woman as set dressing, and that's where more inexperienced, but not always, filmmakers run into trouble. Again, the exploitation issue. One way to back up the importance of the nudity as a storytelling character-revealing element to a prospective actor is to absolutely make the full script available prior to auditions and to note, as is standard on the breakdown, that any questions can be directed to the filmmakers at their email account. So what's really, really important here is that you know your script and your characters well enough that you can explain why it's so important for your actors to be nude. Details of the actual nude scene itself are also very, very important. You need to let your actors know what exactly is being asked of them because they need to be comfortable. Also, you absolutely must let your actors know that there will be nudity involved in the shoot. This means when you're sending out sides and listing it in the audition notes. No surprises. Finally, exactly, no surprises. Finally, as you said, this is not a casting couch video, so please never ask actors to get naked during the audition process. Even for HBO, Bethany only had to get down to bra and panties. So if you absolutely must see them in their nude state, then ask them to wear nude colored underwear and let them know that they will need to derobe to that extent during the audition. 
So those are all opinions, but SAG-AFTRA actually has stipulations within their basic agreement that apply to your situation. So the first is that the producer's representative will notify the performer or his representative of any nudity or sex acts expected in the role. Prior to the first interview, the performer shall also have prior notification of any interview or audition requiring nudity and shall have the absolute right to have a person of the performer's choice present at that audition. Total nudity shall not be required at such auditions or interviews. The performer shall be permitted to wear pasties and a G-string or its equivalent. This may be most important, the appearance of a performer in a nude or sex scene or the doubling of a performer in such a scene shall be conditioned upon his or her prior written consent. So you need to have a contract in place if you're going to have an actor get nude or a sex position, as you said. Um, and those are th probably the most important points of the SAG-AFTRA agreement. Emily, do you want to say anything about this? Yeah, actually. So... While I was at film school at NYU, I did a thesis film about a girl who, very short story, she goes after her older philosophy professor and for, for the wrong reasons. And at the very, very beginning of the film, I wanted to show that she was bored with guys her age. So I actually hired John, who was an actor at NYU at the time, to be a guy at the party that she hooks up with. Oh, Perfect. John played the boring guy? Yeah, yeah. I, was the, I was the boring guy that made her realize that she shouldn't be dating younger men. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> Typecasting. <laughs> yeah, glad I got that insight now. So while this wasn't a full-on sex scene and there wasn't full-on nudity, it was there was bra and underwear situations happening and it was a lot of making out. So... The one big mistake that I learned from directing this was that it wasn't, I hadn't choreographed it enough. I think that I thought that in order to go for authenticity, I would give some vague directions and say, like, do what you would do in this time. But that's really unfair to the actors because that puts them in a, ve a very vulnerable position and they also don't know what's appropriate. So, one of the things that I learned is that you have to tell them what's okay to do and what's okay not to do, and even better, tell them exactly what to do when. So if you can choreograph it like a dance sequence almost, that would be probably the most ideal. Having actually gone through it, it's a very awkward thing for actors to do. And details are the most important thing in every regard, in choreography and letting your actors know beforehand and showing them how it fits their character. So if you have really determined that this is something that is entirely necessary for the film. You need to be entirely ready to back it up. Great answer, you guys. And thanks so much for the question, Thomas. Good luck with your film. We've got some movies opening this week, none of which, I believe, uh, contain nude scenes. <laughs> and coming out on Netflix this Friday, October 28th, is one of my favorite films from the Toronto Film Festival, and perhaps from the year. It's Werner Herzog's Into the Inferno which has Herzog chasing the world's most dangerous volcanoes and their belief systems and cosmologies surrounding. We get into some interesting territory as to be expected in a Herzog film, from going to North Korea to learning about tribes that ask the volcanic spirits to light their cigarettes. And of course, there's the expected Herzog absurd humor that nobody should live without. I was fortunate enough to get to speak to Herzog at the Toronto International Film Festival this year, was perhaps one of the most amazing interviews I've ever done. Uh, we chit-chatted a little bit about Kanye West and, you know, robots and 
some other stuff. The, the kind of gigantic automobiles with these huge uh, fenders and bumpers and uh, like spacecrafts and Elvis sitting in one of those cars. <laughs> yeah, that stuff. After discussing all those important things, Herzog and I got right down to business. Which publication on the internet is that? It is called No Film School. No Film School. I run my own film school, but I, I'm against film schools. Exactly. My first question for Herzog was, what does it feel like to stand on the edge of a volcano? Scientific point of view is certainly always overshadowed by the sense of awe. And uh, that's what I feel looking into uh, a boiling mass of, of lava. But the question of safety is a serious one, and Herzog thinks himself the best man for the job. Uh, where is the borderline? How far do you go? Would you descend, like in Antarctica, to the uh, magma itself? Uh, and our, well, my answer was no. And Clive Oppenheimer's answer is no as well. You do not need to get the perfect shot all the time. There's safety, there's security, there's responsibility for others. Yes. So, and uh, I think I'm the most safety-oriented film director that is around anywhere. There were times, however, when even the most safety-oriented filmmaker around anywhere only narrowly escaped death by magma. Here's Oppenheimer on a particularly scary experience. And that, that particular volcano was, it was um, you know, a real threat and clearly a few days later. Yeah, but, a few uh, days later, exactly where we were filming, seven people, or ten or so, were killed. Yeah. But that wasn't the only time luck was on their side. In 100 years, only three skeletal fragments were found. In 100 years, three. And we were there when it happened. So you, you have to be observant and you have to deserve your luck. What do you mean by deserve your luck? Uh, you have to earn it, okay. like earn your money the old-fashioned <laughs> way by working. Yes. <laughs> we earned our luck by uh, being prudent, yeah. careful, and working hard, and then you deserve to be lucky. Of course, I couldn't not ask about what it was like to film in North Korea, and a story that Herzog told showed that he was a man true to his word. You have to be prudent have to know what you are getting into it. And I do remember <clears throat> one of our cinematographers wanted to bring his drone. He's very good with drones and I said that is not allowed to us and he told me oh I can disassemble it and have some parts of it in different uh, parts of my luggage and I said you're not gonna do this because uh, Number one, you are jeopardizing the fate of the film. And number two, they will find out. And you may end up 20 years in prison. You see, it's also a certain respect for, <clears throat> for a nation that opens itself up to a film all of a sudden. It's pretty much unique that we had permit. And uh, I do remember that once uh, I filmed something I shouldn't have filmed and I was asked to delete it. We couldn't delete it. 
because of the complexity of data management and uh, so I said to them I can guarantee you that this film material these short moments is, are not going to be used by the way very insignificant uh, moment of, of filming and uh, they said guarantee what do you mean by that and I said I have three guarantees my honor my face and my handshake and they accepted it and of course, no conversation with Werner Herzog is complete without a Herzogism being born. And if I may say so myself, this may be one of his best ever. There's a cornucopia of new things. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And, and it can, can come The both. harder you look, the bigger the pile of the unknown becomes. <laughs> We mentioned on last week's show provocative documentarian Michael Moore's surprise new film Michael Moore in Trumpland and its last minute theatrical launch. And now, in keeping with that quick pace, it's already on iTunes. So if you need one more election fix before Americans vote on November 8th, check it out. On November 2nd, opening in New York and L.A. and then rolling out in theaters across the U.S. throughout the month is The Eagle Huntress. I mentioned this movie on our TIFF episode because it was one of my favorites of the festival. It's a soaring, cinematic, absolutely magnificent documentary about a 13-year-old girl who's training to hunt wild game with eagles in the snowy Mongolian wilderness. It's amazing enough to see this little girl with pigtails tackling this incredibly dangerous and violent task. But it's even more impressive when we learn that she's the first female ever to do so in the 2,000-year-old tradition. At TIFF, I interviewed the director, Otto Bell, about their insane small crew production process deep in the mountains. And now we have a No Film School interview podcast coming out next Monday with Bell and one of the film's producers, Stacey Reese, who was handpicked by executive producer Morgan Spurlock to help complete the film. So in, in this conversation, it's less about production, and we really talk about getting the film to Sundance and beyond, like all the steps that still have to happen once you think you're done with the film. So check that out uh, by looking for the No Film School podcast on iTunes. We also have a bunch of Halloween-related posts coming up on No Film School, including a compendium of all of our best tips on horror filmmaking from over the years. And this might be a good time to say that if you have a production horror story, which can be defined as a nightmarish debacle on set, something really spooky or scary that happened, or just something that did not go as planned, um, you should email us and let us know, because I'm compiling a list of the most historically relevant production horror stories and those of our readers. Thanks for joining us on this spooky episode. We've been Liz Gord, Emily Boo, Durr, and John Fuscare. You guys, I thought of that like all night long. <laughs> That's... I like it. I like it. Yeah. You scare. You can read about everything we talked about, all the links to the opportunities on the post associated with this podcast, and lots, lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. If you love the show, which, let's face it, you do, Please rate us with five stars on iTunes and subscribe. You can uh, stay in touch with us. I'm on Twitter at LizFilm. And what are you going to be for Halloween? Say your costume, too. Oh, yeah, that's good. And just for the record, I'm going as Kurt Cobain for Halloween. I'm John Fusco, and my Twitter handle is Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. And I will be playing the part of Legolas for Halloween. Epic. Oh, Legolas is hot. So am I. Listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
And I am E.L. Booter on Twitter, and I am finally realizing my 11-year-old Halloween costume dream, which is to be Frank the Bunny from Donnie Darko, and my friend is being Donnie. My brother's being Aragorn. And you can stay in touch with all of us on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. Have a great Halloween. See you next week. Wake up. 